God's green earth, a great day to celebrate, or is it? Uh, it's a day when five American citizens, yes, five of our fellow citizens, have been uh, released by the uh, terroristic and uh, dictatorial government in Iran, uh, their home. Uh, they are welcomed by the Secretary of State, uh, Mr. Blinken, who is uh, very proud of the achievement of the Biden administration. But is it an appropriate grounds for pride? And then also, what about the claim that uh, one of the clients of the Iranian regime, the terror group uh, based in Gaza of Hamas, has just declared war on Israel, saying we will return to the Intifada. We will get to both of these issues with uh, Ilan Berman, who's been on this show before. He's senior vice president of the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C., and an expert on regional security in the Middle East, Central Asia, and the Russian Federation. Uh, Ilan, first of all, you're not necessarily celebrating uh, the release of the five hostages by the Iranian government. You say that every American should naturally applaud steps that help bring our unjustly imprisoned countrymen home, but anyone who understands the dangers posed by the Islamic Republic should also be deeply concerned. What's the essence of that concern? Right, well, um, so, I think this is exactly the uh, sort of the dichotomy that people are, are struggling with, because very clearly we want to bring our bullies home or, or bring our citizens home. But the price tag that the Biden administration has proven to be willing to pay to, in order to do that is really exorbitant. What we're talking about here is we're talking about six billion dollars in exchange for five uh, Iranian Americans that were unjustly imprisoned by the regime in the first place. Uh, on trumped-up charges of everything from political interference to espionage. Um, the problem with this is, in addition to essentially being a ransom payment, is that money is fungible. And so what we're looking at is, uh, even though the Biden administration has uh, sworn up and down that th this money is going to be used purely for humanitarian purposes, those arguments really are, are very hollow because money is fungible. And so an added $6 billion to the Iranian regime's coffers frees up $6 billion of money that they would use on humanitarian supplies that they can now use on other things, from terrorist support to uh, advancement of their nuclear program. So that, that is an astronomical price to pay. Yeah, and uh, you, you point out that uh, this $6 billion is uh, a great deal of money in terms of the Iranian defense budget. You said the real defense expenditures uh, are now at about $27 billion. So this is a, a, a huge increase if that is all used for the military, as you're saying, as it could be by the Iranians. What do you think the likelihood is that they devote most of this money to the military? I, uh, unfortunately, I think it's very high. Look, the Iranian regime has proven uh, again and again that it prefers guns over butter, that is much more interested in regional hegemony, in regional dominance, than it is in the betterment of its own population. We saw this after the 2015 JCPOA, when 
the uh, direct and indirect sanctions relief that was uh, created and that was facilitated by the Obama administration uh, created a regional expansion on the part of Iran and an expansion of the Iranian defense budget. And I suspect that's what we're going to see right now. And what is the possibility that some of this money will go directly to Hamas, which is uh, something of a client of the Iranian regime? And uh, based in Gaza, they have announced a brand new and intensified terror threat against Israel. No, that, that's right. And, and look, uh, Hamas is not uh, sort of the first among equals in terms of Iranian proxies. Uh, that honor belongs to Hezbollah, the Shiite militia in Lebanon, which has received uh, on the order of hundreds of millions of dollars in aid every year for the last several years running. But Hamas is a force to contend with. Uh, Hamas received both financial support from Iran as well as rocketry and, and uh, support in uh, weapons making that really in has increased over the last decade, has materially increased the threat that Hamas poses to the state of Israel and to Israeli civilians. And the fact that Hamas is intensifying its belligerence anew, that it's beginning to sort of to uh, feel the corners of its box, that it, it's starting to become more aggressive once again, right? Uh, this is, could probably have been predicted, but it's probably not unconnected to the fact that uh, its main patron is uh, is uh, doing better, is, is feeling more stable, because a rising tide lifts all boats. There, even in terms of what Hamas is saying to the world, there's no change in Israeli policy that has provoked this response from Hamas, is there? No, no, uh, there isn't. I mean, obviously, uh, there's uh, quite a bit of internal friction uh, in Israel right now. I just came back from a week in Israel, and there's lots of political acrimony surrounding the judicial reform and uh, surrounding uh, sort of the, the, the political give and take with the current coalition government. But materially, in terms of relations between Israel and the Palestinians, things haven't changed. What has changed is the perception from Israel's enemies that as a result of these political tensions inside, Israel is more vulnerable and weakness is provocative. And what uh, um, uh, you hear so far, it has been mostly shooting, stabbing attacks. I know some car attacks where they use automobiles to try to run people down. It hasn't gone back to the bombing that uh, characterized the Intifada yet, has it? Uh, it, it hasn't yet, and, and I, I certainly hope it doesn't. Um, but what we're seeing uh, increasingly over the last, we saw this over the summer and, and we're seeing this into the fall, is that the level of instability in the Palestinian territories, the uh, aggression and, and the sporadic terrorist attacks that emanate from the Palestinian territories and uh, enter the state of Israel um, has actually intensified, right? The tempo has intensified. And this is something that is giving Israeli officials a lot of pause. They understand that the status quo can't hold and that something serious needs to be done uh, in short order. Which means? Which means that increasingly we're going to see things like we saw back in July, the sort of the Israeli at least limited incursions into Palestinian territory to root out terror cells because the Palestinian Authority is either unable or unwilling or both to uh, police its own territory. And as a result, Israel has to enter the West Bank and enter the Gaza Strip 
in order to keep its citizens safe. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, possibility of uh, some kind of rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which is being encouraged very strongly by the Biden administration, is that encouraging news? Uh, well, it, it's interesting because over the last uh, 24, 48 hours, the Saudis have actually said that, you know, whoa, not so fast. I know the Biden administration has been talking a lot about this, but in fact, Given the current political situation in Israel, we don't feel like we're uh, at a place where we can move forward. And this has been picked up by the press, uh, certainly here in the United States, as, you know, look how bad the current Israeli, the current right-wing Israeli government is. But the dog that isn't barking in this story, and I think it's hugely important, is Iran, is what we've just been talking about. Because Saudi Arabia earlier this year concluded a normalization accord with Iran brokered by China. And Iran, over the last several months, has spent inordinate diplomatic efforts to try to uh, slow the momentum of the Abraham Accords. And I would put down good money that they've told the Saudis that you can be friends with us or you can be friends with Israel, but you can't be friends with them. Elon Berman, his most recent columns are posted on our website at michaelmedved.com. Uh, we will be right back with uh, reactions by the Secretary of State on the return of the hostages coming up. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, Ilan Berman gave us some perspective about some of the negatives about turning loose this $6 billion of Iranian money that had been impounded in South Korea and had gone through Qatar and is now going to Iran. And uh, with that, uh, Secretary Blinken actually said that he had an emotional conversation with the Americans who were freed in that prisoner swap. It's actually a swap of prisoners and money for prisoners. Uh, and uh, here was Secretary Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State of the United States, uh, actually about his emotional reaction to uh, the interchange that he had with the freed prisoners. Uh, listen. I can tell you that uh, after they landed in Doha, um, I can tell you that uh, it was uh, for them... Uh, for me, an emotional uh, conversation. Um, it's easy in the work that we do every day sometimes to get uh, lost in the abstractions of foreign policy and uh, relations with other countries and forgetting the human element that's at the heart of everything we do. But today, their freedom, the freedom of these Americans, Americans for so long, unjustly imprisoned and detained in Iran means some pretty basic things. It means that husbands and wives, fathers and children, grandparents can hug each other again, can see each other again, can be with each other again. So it's a day that I'm grateful for. Okay, he, he also talks about Bob Levinson, which is a sad, sad story. He was an American prisoner uh, and somebody who grew up in America. 
who is now presumed dead in Iran. Here is Secretary Blinken. I'm working to achieve this result for, for years now. Um, as happy as we are at the freedom of our fellow citizens, um, we also are thinking today of Bob Levinson, who is not among them and who is presumed deceased. Bob's legacy, however, lives on. It lives on powerfully in the Levinson Act, which has given us new and important tools to help crack down on and deter the practice of taking Americans unlawfully uh, to try to turn them into political pawns uh, and uh, to abuse the international system. And uh, and then the question of Iranian funds that the Secretary of State uh, also addressed this morning. Clip three. With regard to um, the, the resources, I think it's very important to be very clear about exactly uh, what this involved. As you know, this involved the um, access by Iran to its own money, money that uh, had accumulated in uh, Korean Bank as the result of oil sales that Iran made, which were lawful at the time those sales were made. Uh, and from day one, our sanctions have clearly and indeed always exempt uh, the use of uh, resources for humanitarian purposes because uh, our, uh, uh, our aim is not to harm the Iranian people. Our problem, our profound problem, is with the Iranian regime. So from day one, these Iranian monies that were uh, in, a, in a Korean bank have always been available to Iran to use for humanitarian purposes. But for a lot of technical reasons, they weren't able to access those funds where they were. So the funds were moved uh, to uh, another bank where we have absolute oversight of how, they, how they're used, and they can only be used for humanitarian purposes. Okay, uh, but uh, as Ilan Berman pointed out, they're fungible. That means if they use these funds to pay some humanitarian um, money that they need to spend, that leaves them that much more money to spend on uh, their military and other nefarious uh, factors that are part of the Iranian regime. Uh, meanwhile, speaking of nefarious factors, uh, th there is a, um, uh, a piece that just appeared based on research uh, from uh, NYU, New York University Grossman School of Medicine, which says that uh, patients who have died and survived uh, report lucid near-death experiences. Uh, many, many people who believe in an afterlife have pointed to such studies. This is one of the most comprehensive. And uh, they say that it's not a deathbed myth. Our lives really do flash before our eyes when we die. This according to this report from the NYU School of Medicine. I remember seeing my dad, said one patient, after flatlining. I caught glimpses of my life and felt pride, joy, love, and sadness all pouring into me, recalled another, after being pulled back from the brink. I do remember a being of light standing near me. It was looming over me like a great tower of strength, yet radiating only warmth and love. 
a third survivor shared. It sounds like dreams, doesn't it? Uh, these and many other haunting recollections were described by cardiac arrest patients who underwent cardiopulmonary resuscitation as they hovered on death's doorstep. Now, this is the fascinating part. Typically, doctors have always assumed that there is little or no brain activity. After about 10 minutes of cardiac arrest, when the heart stops beating, depriving the brain of oxygen. However, the new research from NYU turns that misconception on its head. Quote, uh, Dr. Sam Parnia, an associate professor of medicine at NYU Langone Health, said there are signs of normal and near normal uh, brain activity found up to an hour into resuscitation, which is remarkable. Uh, we we had a uh, friend, I, I won't mention his name, he's a, been a friend for a very long time, and before we knew him, he went through um, a near-fatal uh, heart attack where he was at least officially dead for uh, between a minute and a minute and a half. And he spoke about extraordinary memories it was the same kind of thing that you heard described there where he was uh, going down a passageway and going toward very intense light and there was a almost a sense of euphoria about it which of course is somewhat comforting to hear about uh, especially when you're talking about the very very end of life uh, speaking about the end of life, uh, it's not the end, but it might be the beginning of President Trump coming back to meet the press. What did he say? Uh, we'll play you some highlights and lowlights coming up on the Michael Mann. One of the funny stories about recent American politics is uh, involves, well, there's more than one really funny story. There are a lot of them. But uh, the former Alaska governor and vice presidential nominee, Sarah Palin. And I actually think it's kind of endearing and clever and kind of neat that uh, do, do you remember anybody remember out there the Sarah Palin, Joe Biden uh, debate? <laughs> I know it sounds like a meeting of the minds. It, it, it would be so much more fun to see that than to see Trump versus Biden. But in any event, when they debated, uh, there was a problem that the McCain staff had working with Sarah Palin, getting her ready for this debate. And the problem was that she had a tendency when uh, she was giving joe biden's name to call him senator o'biden uh because she was thinking obama biden and i uh, maybe she was thinking he's of irish ancestry and so o'biden fits so uh, they they tried in rehearsing governor palin for the debate uh tried to make absolutely sure that she wouldn't say uh, O'Biden, Senator O'Biden, when she was debating him. And they just couldn't do it. So 
the idea that they had, I think it was Steve Schmidt who had this idea, at least according to the story, uh, was, uh, Governor Palin, what you should do is when you shake hands with him and just say immediately there, do you mind if I call you Joe? And it's a nice thing anyway. And and uh, Senator O'Biden <laughs> immediately said, no, sure, go ahead, call me Joe. Worked out fine, except at one point late in the debate, she did say Senator O'Biden. In any event, uh, this relates to uh, Donald Trump's speech at uh, the recently uh, uh, vote, pray, summit, uh, the president said Obama when he meant Biden. And he was clearly talking about President Obama when he really meant President Biden. Mike Pence was on with Jake Tapper and talking about that and about the confused remarks about uh, President uh, O'Biden being responsible for getting us into World War II. Uh, this is Mike Pence on CNN with Jake Tapper. President Trump said on Friday night, take a listen. By a lot, including Obama. Was, I'll tell you what, you take a look at Obama and take a look at some of the things that he's done. This is the same thing. In addition to seeming to confuse Obama and Biden, um, the president, the former president, also went on to say that reelecting Joe Biden would lead to World War II, uh, which, of course... <laughs> is a war that already happened. Um, If Joe Biden had made comments like that, Republicans would be all over it, talking about his his age, his mental fitness, his sharpness, his acuity. The DeSantis camp has already tweeted that clip out. Uh, You have said that, in your view, Biden has lost a step. Do you think that 77-year-old Donald Trump has lost a step as well? Well, I I didn't hear the speech, uh, so I'd leave it to judgments of others. But look, I've said very clearly, we don't need a president who's too old, and we don't need a president who's too young. You know, I'm in this race because I I believe that I I will bring the experience, the energy, and the commitment to a consistent conservative agenda that's going to be necessary to turn around the failed policies of the Biden administration that have weakened us at home and abroad. Okay, uh, an effective answer? I think a uh, seriously effective answer. Uh, Meanwhile, concerning President Trump's Meet the Press interview with uh, Kristen Welker, and uh, this has gotten a lot of attention because it was President Trump's first appearance since he left the presidency with a... um, a broadcast network, uh, in other words, not a cable network, but a broadcast network. It was uh, an interview that lasted more than an hour and had a great deal of substance to it. Uh, for instance, a president was asked, former president, if he believes there is a uh, two-tier justice uh, system. Uh, this was a tease that they used for this weekend's Meet the Press interview. This is clip 11. President's son, Hunter Biden, was indicted by a federal grand jury on three gun charges. Given that, Mr. President, can you continue to say that there are two systems of justice? Well, I think there's no question about it. He had a plea deal that was the deal of the century. Uh, The art of the deal. You could write a book on it. The art of the deal. 
uh, and all of a sudden that was broken up by a judge who was able to, a brilliant judge actually, who was able to see through what was happening. And it's a sad situation. I mean, nobody should be happy about this. I'm not happy about it. Nobody is. It's a very sad thing. It's so bad for our country. But, you know, if you think about it, I've been under investigation from the day I came down the escalator and a phony investigation, fake investigations, investigations that I beat every single time, still under investigations. But it's a very sad thing and it's a uh, slippery slope and dangerous, very dangerous for our country. Uh, and the, the question then would be, isn't it a sign that the judicial system is working that he was indicted? That's the way that she should have asked the question, it seems to me. Uh, and then she asked a question about President Trump's concerns, if any, about ending up in jail. When you go to bed at night, do you worry about going to jail? No, I don't, really. I don't even think about it. I'm built a little differently, I guess, because I have had people come up to me and say, how do you do it, sir? How do you do it? Uh, I don't even think about it. These are corrupt people that I'm dealing with. They're destroying our country. I don't even think about it. All I think about is making the country great, making America great. Look, these are political, these are banana republic indictments. These are third world indictments. The president of the United States sees how we're doing. We have a movement, the likes of which has never happened in this country before. And you see it with the polls. I mean, I'm up on these people by 60 points and 59 points. Okay, and then uh, one of the premises of President Trump's campaign has been retribution. I am your voice, I am your justice, I am your retribution. Kristen Welker asked about that. Talk about retribution. Are you talking about directing your attorney general to try to go after your political enemies? When I talk about retribution, I'm talking about fairness. We have to treat people fairly. These people on January 6th, they went, some of them never even went into the building and they're being given sentences of, you know, many years. Are you going to pardon And nothing is happening. Well, I'm going to look at them and I certainly might if I think it's appropriate. Uh, no, it's a very, very sad thing. And it's, they're dividing the country so badly and it's very dangerous. Well, Mr. President, we're going to delve into that a little bit later on, but I want to stay on this idea of what you mean by retribution. Are you looking to appoint an attorney general who will prosecute the people you tell them to prosecute? I'm looking to appoint an attorney general who's going to be tough on crime and fair. Talk about retribution. Are you talking about directing your attorney general to try to go after? Oh, well, again, this is, uh, <laughs> it seems to me, a real question that President Trump dodged. Uh, he, he was asked about retribution doesn't mean fairness it it, uh, uh, it 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 basically means getting even with other people you don't usually view fairness uh, as, as something that uh, involves additional uh, punishment uh, because who gets um, who gets the benefit if President Trump goes after his enemies? legally with that whole theme of lock him up lock her up uh we'll be right back uh locking up the rest of highlights from meet the press that and more coming up on the
Michael Medved Show. One of the things that uh, President Trump uh, said uh, within the uh, during the weekend was that uh, he liked the idea of a female running mate. And the Hill magazine, the Hill website, has uh, pointed out that according to people who are close to President Trump, part of his campaign, he has narrowed it down to four women uh, to be his running mate when they believe it's a question when, not if, he wins the Republican nomination. We will talk about who those four women are next time on The Medved Show. Meanwhile, President Trump also spoke with uh, Kristen Welker uh, on Meet the Press. That's her new gig, replacing Chuck Todd. Uh, he also spoke about abortion and about a fairly moderate position that he appears to be taking on that explosive issue. Uh, listen, clip one. A very clear sense of where I think you stand I on I think this. they're all going to like me. I think both sides are going to like me. Let, let me but what's let Mr. going President, to have to Mr. happen President, is you're going to have to... This question, Kristen, please. you're asking me a question. What's going to happen is you're going to come up with a number of weeks or months. You're going to come up with a number that's going to make people happy. Because 92% of the Democrats don't want to see abortion after a certain period of time. If a federal ban landed on your desk if you were reelected, would you sign it at 15 Are you talking about a complete ban? A ban at 15 weeks. Well, people, people are starting to think of 15 weeks. That seems to be a number that people are talking about right now. Would you sign that? Uh, uh, I, would, I would sit down with both sides and I'd negotiate something and we'll end up with peace on that issue for the first time in 52 years. Uh, I'm not going to say I would or I wouldn't. I mean, DeSantis is willing to sign a five-week and six-week ban. Would you support that? You think that I, I goes I think too what far? he did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake. Uh, that's uh, President Trump very clearly dissociating himself from the uh, six-week, that's often called the heartbeat bill. The uh, interesting thing, the point that he didn't make is that this goes along with the decision reached by the Supreme Court and the three justices he appointed as part of that Supreme Court. Uh, half of the justices who uh, voted for the Dobbs decision had been appointed by Donald J. Trump. Now, what's interesting about that is the Dobbs case was about a 15-week ban. And it is not entirely clear that uh, the court would have... Uh, held the same way. Certainly Justice Roberts, the Chief Justice, would not had it been before the court as a six-week ban. So this idea of a 15-week ban, that that probably is the number. That's the number they came up with in Mississippi, which was the state that made that limitation on abortion and that uh, defended itself successfully as part of... Uh, the Dobbs decision. Finally, uh, Trump uh, was asked about <laughs> whether there was any circumstance in uh, which he <clears throat> would take uh, a third term in office. Now, he could have said uh, very easily, well, that's against the Constitution, 
And no, he's not going to be able to change the Constitution to allow a third term in office if he, even if he does serve uh, between 2025 and 2029. Here's uh, why he said he doesn't even need that third term in office. This is clip 13. Which, because Ron DeSantis says if he were elected, he'd have two turns and you'd only have one more turn. Is there any scenario by which you would seek a third term in office? No. Just so you understand, when DeSantis says that, that means he's not your man. He's not your man anyway because he's a very untalented guy and he's proven that. He started out, everybody was talking to him. After I worked him over a little bit, he's gone down the tubes. I I don't think he's going to end up being number three or four. He just had a poll today. He was number four. And by the way, the one that was number two was 59 points behind. So, you know, it's very interesting. But when somebody says eight years, we need eight years, no. In six months to a year, many of the problems, almost all of the problems that you and I have just spoken about will be solved. Anybody that says they need eight years, you don't want that person. Okay, this is extraordinary. And the fact that he he didn't bring up that it was a question of the Constitution and the 22nd Amendment, and no one can serve a third term, no, not even Donald J. Trump, without changing the Constitution, which requires two-thirds of the vote in the House, two-thirds of the vote in the Senate, and three-quarters of the state legislatures. It's not going to happen in order to facilitate a third term for him. Uh, meanwhile, uh, there is a, um, a a movie that's out there that uh, is inspiring and actually patriotic and uh, about the joys of family and space exploration. Uh, listen. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. Michael Pena stars in a genuinely inspiring true story about a migrant farm worker with a seemingly unattainable dream. He imagines himself a million miles away. Now streaming on Amazon Prime. What's your big goal, dream? I want to be an astronaut. You're serious. I've wanted this for almost 30 years. Every decision I've made, I've made with the space program in mind. And this film is a stunningly effective tribute to that space program while praising the timeless value of family, marital romance, and the American dream. The film is full of rich characterizations, irresistible emotion, and flat-out amazement that this extraordinary story really is true. Rated PG and highly suitable for family viewing. Three and a half stars for A Million Miles Away. Surely one of the better films of 2023. And it is available on Amazon Prime. And I know people in general are loving it as much as I did. Uh, A million miles away. Uh, Speaking of a million miles away, there is a a loneliness epidemic in the country. And uh, it is an epidemic that hits men much more than women. There's a a piece on its specific impact, which is extremely destructive, on fathers. Uh, We'll cover that next time on the Medved Show. And uh, as I mentioned, we will cover another female topic, the topic of who are the four women who uh, 
Trump is most seriously considering at the moment as his running mates. Now, some of them you've heard of. Some of them may come as a big surprise. We will cover that uh, next time on the Medved Show. And uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who is the Democratic leader in the House of Representatives, has said it's tough for him because there's a civil war going on, but not a civil war in Congress, not a civil war in the Democratic Party, which he leads, but a civil war in the Republican Party. Why should that be such a, a serious matter and such a serious threat for Hakeem Jeffries and the rest of the country? Uh, we will talk about that. We will talk about the future of the uh, Republican Party and uh, the idea of actually bringing that party together or is the separation, as you saw with the issue on avoiding a government shutdown, is the separation simply too profound? Uh, there's also the ongoing meetings at the U.N., which are not only causing traffic jams <laughs> in New York, but uh, with the General Assembly meeting, they uh, could be meetings that have a real impact on foreign policy questions that the United States is going to need to deal with. And Kevin McCarthy, uh, as if he doesn't have enough trouble, uh, is being uh, charged, identified with a snub of Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, a, a nation that is fighting gallantly and basically closely aligned with the United States. Why would, uh, would Kevin McCarthy, for any reason at all, want to provide a slight in that regard? We will get to that as well uh, next time in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.